Let's look in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. A number of years ago, I remember a man I had the chance to share the gospel with. And his response was, well, I don't really need Christianity. My life is together and it's fine without any kind of religion in my life. And I tried to explain to him that though it appeared to be so, that wasn't really so. And then I finally asked him, well, what are you going to do when Jesus Christ comes again the day of judgment? And his response was, well, I believe Jesus is coming again. And you know, I think it's going to be like a great big cocktail party. He'll slap you in the back and say, how you doing, good buddy? Good to have you here. Well, this man had a very misinformed and flippant view of Jesus Christ. And I think in ways that are much less blatant, many of us suffer the same way. And one of the uh, big advantages of the, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation is they give us a clearer picture of Jesus Christ and help us in particular to see that, that this, the uh, uh, severe side of him and to see that he's one that we must take seriously. Now, these letters were letters to seven real churches. They were all in the uh, Roman province of Asia, which today is modern Turkey. Why these seven churches? Well, John the Apostle, who wrote the book of Revelation, was headquartered in the, the church at Ephesus. And thus they were all churches within his uh, reach, within his sphere of influence. And he was now exiled on the island of Patmos, 35 miles off the coast of Asia. So they were the closest, the, the churches that were close to him. Now, some have suggested that these churches were, are prophetic of the uh, development of the history of the church throughout the church age. And yet there's nothing in the passage, passages themselves that suggests that they're prophetic of different churches, different periods of history throughout the church age. And the Lord actually gives us an outline of the book in which he seems to imply otherwise. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says to John, Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, which would be the vision in chapter 1, the things which are, this would be the letters to the seven churches, the conditions then prevailing, and the things which shall take place after these things. This would be the visions in chapter 4 to 22, things that would come in the future. So these were seven literal churches. These were conditions prevailing within them. And the messages are applicable to us in that we often are guilty of the same sins. We're in need of the same kinds of encouragements that the Lord uh, gives in these letters. Let's look, first of all, at the letter to the church in Thyatira, in chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. First of all, the Lord identifies the church and then the writer of the epistle. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, here alone, in all of this uh, book, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. He's wishing to stress his deity. He's wishing to emphasize that, that the people of this church must not take him lightly. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. His piercing vision penetrates past all of our pretenses and phoniness. He sees us for what we are. And furthermore, he's the one who has feet like burnished bronze. They're powerful and strong and heavy. 
and ready to stomp out evil when he comes in the day of judgment. In verse 19, we find the commendation to this church, and it's really quite, uh, quite a high commendation. He says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He says that the church was a hard-working church. And their work, moreover, was motivated by love. They weren't just going through the routine. They weren't just like assembly line workers thoughtlessly doing their, their business. But they were, their works were motivated by love. Furthermore, they're empowered by faith. They're guided by an attitude of service. They had a sincere desire to serve God and man. They're not merely working out of guilt feelings. Furthermore, these works that they had were not mere spasms of activity occasionally, but they were consistent. They had perseverance. On top of this, he said, you are growing. Your deeds of late are greater than at first. This is uh, not something to be taken for granted. Oftentimes, we will grow to a certain level of spiritual maturity and experience and then stop and be satisfied with that and no, no longer want to strive and seek God's face and pay the price to know Him in a deeper and deeper way. But this church was growing. But as we'll see, they were characterized by love but failed to have a proper apprehension of truth. Their problem was the opposite of the problem of the church at Ephesus. As we've seen, the church of Ephesus had a good grasp on truth. They would not tolerate false teaching within their church. And yet they didn't have love. How hard it is to wed the two and have love and truth together. But Jesus rebukes them in verses 20 to 23 for, for their uh, tolerance of untruth. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Within this church was this woman whom he calls Jezebel. Now, I'm sure this wasn't her real name. I can't imagine the uh, cruelty of parents naming their poor little uh, baby daughter after the most notoriously wicked queen in the history of Israel. I'm sure that the Lord is using this name symbolically because this woman was to the church at Thyatira what Jezebel was to Israel. Jezebel... Uh, pressured and influenced her husband, King Ahab, into Baal worship and through him the whole nation and the immorality that accompanied that. This woman, this prophetess within the church at Thyatira, was influencing the church, leading them into uh, idolatrous and immoral practices. She was able to do so because she proclaimed herself to be a prophetess. Now, I'm sure that she had some kinds of unusual experiences she had visions, she had dreams, she had revelations. And the people were impressed with this. They would come to her probably to seek her counsel on, uh, on different issues and she would, she would lift her head up into heaven and lift her hands looking for an answer and then come down and with glaring vision 
declare to them, Thus says the Lord God to you, and proclaim what she said was the truth from God. And yet she was merely a self-proclaimed prophetess, reminded that we must not believe all who call themselves such, even if they have visions and dreams and uh, apparent revelations. Well, by her position, she was teaching and leading Christ's servants astray. The result was that they were committing acts of immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. Archaeologists have told us that Thyatira uh, had uh, many trade guilds. Matter of fact, more have been discovered there than any of these other cities in Asia at this time. They had trade guilds of uh, wool makers, of linen makers, guilds of makers of outer garments, of dyers, of leather workers, of tanners, of potters, of bakers, of slave dealers, of bronze smiths, all known in Thyatira. And the problem for the Christians was that you had to belong to the trade guild to carry out this kind of occupation. If you didn't belong to the trade guild, you couldn't get a job. And the trade guilds were uh, incorporated pagan rites within their meetings. They'd meet together for a trade union meeting, and they'd have their own individual idol and the god they worshipped. And with many of the gods of, of the ancient world, these uh, some of these were associated with different fertility rites. They had a voodoo kind of mentality. It's like if you stick a, a pin in a voodoo doll, it's supposed to cause pain to somebody else. They felt that if they uh, had sexual relationships with one another in these religious festivals, it would invoke the gods to, have, to make the grounds fertile, to have relationships with the earth and bring about the plants and fruitful crops. And so their meetings would degenerate into to drunken orgies. And people from the church were coming to this prophetess and saying, what should we do? We don't want to lose our jobs, and yet uh, we don't know if we should go to these meetings. We don't want to associate with evil or displease God in any way. We've got to take care, but we've got to take care of our families. What should we do? And this prophetess would look into the heavens and come back with an answer. Thus says the Lord God, you may go to these meetings. Idols are nothing, and therefore the eat... The meat offered to idols uh, is, uh, unlike, is, is not unlike any other meat. You can feel free. You don't have to be restricted. God wants you to be happy. God doesn't want to lay any burden upon you. You can associate with the world and go along with all these things. And so by her teaching, she was leading them into this. Furthermore, apparently by her example, she was leading them into, into immorality. We're told in verse 21 that she herself was guilty of immorality. And the word translated immorality here means sexual immorality. So she was apparently going to these meetings and becoming sexually involved with people. And her fellow Christians would look at her and see her doing this, and they'd think, well, it must be okay. After all, she's a prophetess. She's a leader in the church. Well, God pronounces judgment upon her and her followers in verses 22 and 23. He says with a stroke of irony, you like to be in bed? that I'm going to cast you in a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with you, I will uh, cast into great tribulation, and your children I will kill with pestilence. Now, at times it's difficult to determine when some of these things are figurative statements and when they're literal. I would understand this to mean that uh, those who committed adultery with her are probably those who were committing spiritual adultery, those who were joining up with her teachings and actually committing uh, immoral acts at these uh, meetings, but through their 
through following her, they were committing spiritual adultery in their relationship with God. Then the children would, would then be the offspring of the union of Jezebel and her close disciples. In other words, those who had been influenced secondarily by her. And God says the whole lot are going to come under judgment. And the reason is so that all the churches may know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. We're reminded of the episode in Acts chapter 5, which Annas and Sapphira came before the apostles and said, we sold our piece of property, we're giving all the money to the church. But in fact, they kept back half of it. Peter saw through their pretensions by the powers God gave him and, and pronounced judgment upon them, and they were struck dead instantly. And fear came upon the whole church. The problem wasn't that they kept back part of the money. The problem was that they were playing the hypocrite, and they were lying to God and to the church. And God wanted the church to know that, that it cannot be what, what he wants it to be if hypocrisy prevails in its midst. And here he wants the church to know, the churches to know, that he is the God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and he sees what's happening in them. And he will bring them to judgment if they participate in, uh, in the deeds of Jezebel. Now, the problem in the church of Thyatira was really twofold. First of all, in that they tolerated this woman Jezebel, as we're told in verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, it may be that they were, were thinking that God is forbearing towards sinners, so we will be too. We're told in verse 21 that God gave her time to repent. And it's true, God does not desire the death of the wicked, but wants to give everyone uh, a chance to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. So he forestalls judgment, and he forestalls it, and he's patient and patient before finally one day it comes. And yet he's told us as Christians that we're not to do the same thing. We are to be patient with one another as we're weak and fall and have problems. And yet her, uh, Jezebel was not merely having a struggle with sin. She was openly defying the law of God and leading others astray. And therefore, the church should have dealt with this and gotten rid of her and her evil influence in, its midst, in, in their midst. It may be that the church's favorite verse was uh, that in Matthew 7, which Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. I've heard many people quote that saying, well, you should never pass any judgment on anybody or say anything bad about anybody, no matter what they're doing. Such who take that stand fail to understand Jesus' teaching. He says there, don't be hypocrites by judging others who have a speck in their eye when you have a log in yours. But first take the log out of your own eye so that you may be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So his goal is that we do judge one another in the sense that we, we uh, deal with sin within our midst because we're those who call upon the name of the Lord and were those who uh, uh, need to take sin seriously. And out of love, as David spoke last week, we need to help one another uh, avoid being deceived and fall into it. They may have prided themselves in their tolerance. But that was their first problem, is that they were allowing her to continue. Their second problem was that some were following her influence and uh, patterning themselves after her sin. Now, it seems that we as Christians make one of two extreme errors. We either become monks or we become drunks. 
And we need to be neither. Uh, some Christians are rightly concerned about the influences of the world and want at all costs to avoid becoming worldly, being, being influenced in sinful patterns. And it's, a, and it's a righteous desire we should all have. And yet they misunderstand certain things and take a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, which in the King James says, avoid all appearance of evil, though it's probably mistranslated. And the modern version says, avoid every form of evil. And they take that to mean, well, we shouldn't go to uh, uh, pool halls or movie theaters or uh, grocery stores that have non-Christians uh, present there or uh, become isolationists. And those in extreme become monks. They fail to realize that, that the Lord Jesus himself was criticized in his day by the Pharisees because he associated himself with sinful people. He socialized with tax collectors and with prostitutes because in love he was reaching out to them. Well, others make the opposite error, that of becoming licentious. They think, well, we shouldn't uh, make too many rules. We shouldn't uh, be uptight. And we need to identify ourselves with the world. And through that identification, they rationalize their own sin. I was uh, uh, observed a, uh, a group that had a summer beach ministry, a Christian group one, one time, and they were very big on love. It's like this church, but very small on truth. Their philosophy was you just kind of get together and everybody be warm and love one another. And God and the Bible kind of come in whenever... Uh, just every every now and then, and the result was not much ministry. The result was was wine parties on the beach and couples pairing off to uh, go parking or skinny dipping or other such things. They were were casting aside all moral rules or many of them, failing to realize that that though God calls us to identify with the world in the sense that we love sinners, we extend ourselves to to break barriers and and be with people who don't know him. Nevertheless, we don't uh, adopt their sins. The problem with this church is that people were following Jezebel and her example. Part of it was due to the pressure. And maybe some of you are experiencing the same pressure. Maybe your boss is a little bit shady in his business practices and puts pressure on you. I know that Carolyn Friend has that problem, Bernie. <coughs> They put pressure on you to uh, go along with them. And you, and you feel that you might lose your job if you're not willing to fudge a little bit. Others of you might feel pressure from the world for acceptance by your peer group and think you have to lower your moral standards or, or get into gossip and cynicism and negativism or dirty jokes or whatever else it is so you'll be accepted. And the Lord's message is we don't have to compromise with the world. We don't have to follow the path of Jezebel and adopt their moral standards and way of doing things. There are a few in the church, he says, who have maintained themselves, and he encourages them in 24 and 25. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. We get one more insight into Jezebel and her followers with this phrase, knowing the deep things of Satan. Apparently, some in the church were questioning their activities. Uh, 
and pointing out that there was even Satanism involved with some of these idolatrous rites. And Jezebel and her followers apparently were saying, yes, but we need to know even the deep things of Satan, that we may be fully experienced, that we may not be sheltered from anything, that we can identify with the world and know all that the, the struggles that non-Christians go through. And God says, no, you don't have to know sin. You don't have to experience it to be a full, well-rounded person. You don't have to go to seances or, or uh, uh, use a Ouija board or go to X-rated movies or anything else to, to become full and knowledgeable. And so he commends those who have kept themselves from this. And he says, I place no other burden on you, no other burden, that is, than the burden of having to deal with this woman Jezebel. And it would be difficult to confront her, to confront this problem in this church. She was a strong person with a strong personality and had a following. It would be hard to, to excise this evil from the church. Nevertheless, he says, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he warns them, as he warns us, not to be too distracted with their fight against evil within the church, just so distracted that they forget to do the things that are really the essential things of the Christian life exhibit love and faith, perseverance and service, and experience growth, as he commended them for in verse 19. And we can be so consumed with our worries and concerns uh, over humanism and secularism and, and uh, moral degeneration, things about which we should be concerned, but we can be so consumed by those that we forget to live the life of, uh, of God and walk with him. And so he encourages them to not forget these things and hold them fast. And then he encourages them further by holding out to them a reward for their faithfulness. Verses 26 to 28. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. These words in verses 26 and 27 are quoted from Psalm 2, which Terry read for us earlier. The psalm is a messianic psalm, and it, and it pictures a day in which Jesus Christ will be given the authority to smash the uh, godless nations in the day of judgment, coming day of judgment. The verse is uh, quoted in Further in Revelation, in chapter 12, verse 5, and 19:15 of Jesus Christ himself. And in chapter 19, we have pictured the, the last battle, the battle of Armageddon. And Jesus Christ will come and descend from the clouds and smash the, the uh, godless, defiant uh, foes in that last battle as, a, as with a rod of iron. But here, he's saying that these things will find fulfillment in us. We who overcome will be given authority. What he's saying is that because we are in Christ, we will share with him in his judgment and then in the rule that follows during his millennial reign. The tables will be overturned. And though now we may be suffering at the hands of the world, persecution and deprivation in various forms, nevertheless, the tables will be overturned. And in the end, we will win out and share with him in his victory. He gives them this encouragement because to get there, they have to be overcomers. They have to be those who keep, he says, who keep his deeds until the end. He's reminding us that Christianity is not a, 
a temporary battle. It's an extended campaign. And therefore, we need strong motivation to endure day after day after day. To be able to be faithful to Him and to suffer the deprivation that might come by losing your job or losing your friends or the struggles and problems that will uh, accrue to you as you are faithful in a marriage you wish you hadn't gotten into or suffer some other kind of consequences because you are faithful to Jesus Christ. It takes a strong incentive, and so he gives us one. He says, To those who overcome, I will give them authority to share with me in the judgment and rule of the nations. Now, this raises a question. What happens to Christians who don't overcome? Well, I think the, the Lord would say there, there are no such things. Because when a person becomes a Christian, he's born again. He has a new life in him. And that life must break out. It must manifest itself. And it, it, it will produce the person who is an overcomer, who maintains himself faithful to the Lord until the end. Oh, we're all faithless in, a, in small ways, in temporary ways. Whenever we fall into any kind of sin, we're faithless. And yet, in the long run, he will work in us to make us this kind who overcomes and who is faithful to him. Furthermore, he says, I will give him the morning star. In chapter 22, the Lord himself is described as the morning star. And here he's saying that he will give, him, give us not only rule and authority, but also himself. When he comes again and we are raptured or resurrected, then we will be transformed. And as the morning star is the uh, first light of the dawning day, so he will give us himself in a dawning and growing way as we experience more of the light of his presence in our relationship with him. And so he holds these out to us as rewards, as incentives for sticking with what may be a struggle in the meantime. Well, the church at Sardis also had a problem with seeing Christ as he really was. People at Sardis, I suppose that we call them sardines, not sure, um, really thought a lot of themselves. <laughs> they probably had to cramp quarters and had to cram them in the pews, I guess. But they really thought a lot of themselves. This was the church that took out a half-page ad in the newspaper every Saturday in the Turkey Times. And they advertise themselves as the church that's on the move. Asia's exciting church. Come here, our pastor, Dr. T.L. Bigwig. Ph.D., T.H.D., D.D. Preach uh, glorious sermons. Come hear our five choirs with our 40-piece orchestra. and our Come see our dynamic youth program and exciting children's ministry. And on and on the, they would go, proclaiming their own glory. This is a church that people would refer you to if you said, where's the action at in Asia? Where's the church where it's really happening? They'd say, oh, it's at Sardis. And yet we see what the Lord thought of this church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive and you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. 
If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it's unfortunate that we uh, had this passage this morning while Brian Fisher's out of town. Uh, Bob Dylan has recently come out with a, uh, a song, When You're Going to Wake Up, Strengthen the Things That Remain. It's based on verse 2, and, and we were going to have Brian sing that for you well, when we came to this passage, but he's at the men's retreat this morning, unfortunately. Well, this church thought very well of themselves, and yet the Lord says, when are you going to wake up? You think that you're alive, and yet you're dead. And in here, we see a warning of the dangers of, de of self-deception. Now, the self-deception can come corporately or can come individually. We at uh, Cole Church has a somewhat of a reputation uh, in the community because we're one of the larger evangelical churches in the state. And so it would be easy for us to think this is where the action's at. We have life. But woe to us if we become self-deceived and self-satisfied. Certainly things are happening here and God is at work, but we're just scratching the surface of what God wants us to do and be. And woe to us if individually we become self-satisfied and say, well, look at what's happened in my life. Now I can just relax and uh, enjoy the, my achievements spiritually where I've gotten to. We're always tempted to do that to achieve a certain amount of, of spiritual growth and life and then just glide through the rest of life. But woe to us if we fall into the self-deception that allows us to, to be content merely with a reputation for life when that life is not there. Their self-deception was so severe that many of them were not even Christians. The Lord says to them, Wake up. See what you're like. He says, further, remember what you have received and heard. Remember what the true gospel is and what it means to know Jesus Christ as the Lord of life and repent. Turn yourself around. Reorient your whole thinking about me. And he says, if you don't, I will come, uh, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I come upon you. Paul says in first, let me read the uh, few verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul says that Christ will come as a thief upon those who don't know him. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. Uh, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And he warns them, you might be deceiving yourselves into thinking that you're really believers when you're not. Now imagine that many of you have met people like I've met who say, well, I know I'm not living the life I should live. And I'm engaged in this and that that I shouldn't be doing. 
and I'm not really seeking after my relationship with Christ, but I know that someday I will go to heaven. And then we ask, how do you know? Well, because I prayed a prayer that Christ would come into my life, and I went forward at a meeting, and I was baptized and joined the church. But such people can be self-deceived. We can have some kind of psychological experience of, of faith and commitment and think that something's really happened there. John tells us elsewhere in the second chapter of his first epistle, by this we may be sure that we have come to know him if we walk in the same way in which he walked. He says the only real basis for assurance that we have salvation is that we see it taking place in our lives. We see it being worked out. And none of us is perfect. We're all going to make mistakes and we ha might have some temporary setbacks as we, as we get out of fellowship for a period. And yet, if we're really born again, then that new life which has been worked in us will work itself out and show itself. The Lord says this further in, uh, in verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He says there must be some sort of worthiness within us. Not that any of us is really worthy in a strict sense. I'm not worthy of him. There are many attitudes and, and uh, motivations and, and actions and thoughts in my own life that are, that are far from perfect. And yet what he's saying is there must be some congruence between our profession of faith and our action. There must be some correlation between them. If he's really within our lives, then... We, then there's going to be some worthiness in our actions and lifestyle. And woe to us if we deceive ourselves with saying, I said the prayer, I went forward, though my life has not changed, I know I, I'm going to heaven. He wants us to wake up and take uh, account and see if we're really His, because if we are, it's going to show it in our lives. Woe to us, furthermore, if we're self-deceived into allowing ourselves to slip into a pattern of non-growth and mere maintenance. Because whenever we do that, we always slip rather than maintain. And he says, those who have not soiled their garments, in other words, those who uh, have not become impure through unrighteous practices, will walk with him in white. Now, this church is not denounced for their idolatry and immorality. And I imagine if you looked at the church, they looked good. They had a reputation for being alive. And yet God saw through their pretensions and phoniness. And he saw that beneath the religious facades were hearts of pride, self-righteousness, and arrogance, and intolerance for people who are different than they, and impatience, and grumpiness, and resentments, gossiping, all sins which are just as staining in their unrighteousness as immorality and idolatry. And he says they will be rewarded. Those who overcome will be clothed with him in white. He will come again. We will be changed, transformed, either raptured or resurrected, and we will have new bodies. We'll be clothed in bodies of righteousness. All the stains of sin and all the struggles of sin within us will be taken away. And we will walk with him in white. And he assures us that, that our names will not be erased from the book of life. Not that anybody's name is ever put there and then erased. But it's a figurative way to say that your salvation will be secure and made complete. He who has an ear to, to hear, he says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God wants us to take Jesus Christ seriously. 
He is one who has the vision of, the, of a flame of fire and sees through all of our pretensions. He knows what we're like. He calls us to total commitment to Him, not compromise with the world so that we'll be accepted by them or so that we can do our favorite uh, sins. He calls us to a life of reality and growth, relationship with Him, not a mere reputation for a life, but a real life. And He calls us to endure no matter what the cost because the reward will be great and overwhelming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for who You are. You are our great and mighty God. Help us to see You for who You are not play games with you. Lord, deliver us from phoniness. Deliver us from thinking that we can, uh, we can indulge ourselves in our favorite sins and avoid your finding us out. Lord, may we live lives of the overcomer and find your power and your courage and strength to be and do all that you call us to be and do in this life, that we may be richly rewarded when you come again. And we pray these things, Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.